Hey everyone, this is your girl Amber and this is Reaching Your Potential, episode 11. In this episode, we will be discussing some important information that you should know for the boards and the topic of upper extremities and hands. There's this misconception that people think when they see OTs or work with OTs that we're just upper extremity, that we're always with fine motor movements and fine motor coordination and hands things. No, we're more than that. We are more than upper extremities. I repeat, we are more than upper extremities. But in this episode, we will be discussing things and dealing with upper extremity injuries, even some important nerves that we need to remember that are innervated in the hands that will present as a certain injury or a certain deformity. We will also be discussing some splinting, the different types of splints that we should know, as well as some tests that we can do for patients in order to have an idea of what type of deformity or injury they do have. So let's get started. go straight into it and talk about different upper extremity diagnoses or deformities but I feel that we can't go over those things without knowing some nerves so I know there's so many nerves in our bodies right and in neuroscience courses and OT school it was very stressful (laughs) like going to lab and looking at the brain and looking at all the different type of tracks that we have to remember for neuro was very stressful. And if you say it wasn't, I wish I had your type of ability to get through it because I was struggling at times, okay? But, you know, I got through it. I got through OT school. If I can do it, you can do it too. But anyway, sidetrack. I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the main nerves that we need to remember for the exam. And I know we can look at the whole brachial plexus and see all the different types of nerves, such as the musculotaneal, the axillary, median, radial, ulnar, all of them, right? But I'm only going to talk about three of them, okay? And the three are radial, ulnar, and median. And in order to remember those, I'm sure people heard of it, the mnemonic Dr. Kuma, right? So Dr. Kuma is spelled D-R-C-U-M-A, and it stands for the nerves as well, but also the deformity that it represents. So before I even go to that, I will explain what each nerve is. So in the radial nerve, right, it's going to originate from the thumb to the half of the ring finger. So basically the first four and a half in a way, right? And also the wrist. So that's going to help you kind of see what deformity is going to be for the radial nerve. So in Dr. Kuma, the D and the R, the R stands for radial. So the D in doctor stands for wrist drop, D for drop. And this makes sense, right? Because if we know the radial nerves originate from the thumb, to the half of the ring finger and the wrist, 
since that is innervated and if there is some type of compression in the radial nerve, it's going to be a wrist drop. So that's radial. Okay, now we have kuma. So the first two letters of kuma are C and U. So C stands for claw hand and the U stands for ulnar nerve. So if we have an ulnar nerve compression, that is our claw hand. We usually see claw hand when the person's hand is at rest and they are trying to extend their fingers. But mostly the thing that you're going to see with claw hand is that in the fourth and fifth digit is going to hyperextend at the MCP joints. A test that we can do in order to see if there is, is some type of compression or enchantment in the ulnar nerve is testing out the froment sign. So the Froman sign or testing that is we're going to hand the client a piece of paper and we're going to tell them to pinch the paper as hard as they can. So they usually you're holding the paper between your thumb and your index finger. And usually if the person doesn't have a positive sign for this, they can hold that piece of paper for as long as you want, right? Even when you try to take it away from them, they can still hold it. But if there is something going on in the ulnar nerve, they will not be able to hold on to that paper. That paper is going to be easily pulled away, and that's going to be a positive sign of Froment's sign. And a way that I remember that is a, a silly way. It's Froment for a moment, right? So Froment for a moment, I'm thinking a short moment. And the reason why it's a short moment is the ulnar side is usually like the shorter fingers. So the fourth and fifth digits are usually shorter than the rest of your fingers, except for the thumb, but just go with me here. <laughs> so froment for a moment is usually a short moment, and that's my owner side. And the owner side, we already know because of Dr. Kuma, is claw hand. I hope that helped. <laughs> I don't know. I think of these silly things, and it worked for me. I hope it will work for you. And this is really important to remember because ulnar nerves is all about power grip and we use power grips all the time when we are holding things and we want to make sure that we're not letting go so if we have an ulnar nerve compression or entrapment we're going to lose that power grip so keep that in mind and the last two letters of kuma is ma and m stands for median nerve and the a represents if there is a compression in the median nerve it will be eight panned. So the median nerve is going to innovate the thumb all the way to the half of the ring finger. But keep in mind, the most important thing to think of is the thumb, because that is going to help us with thumb opposition. And it's really interesting to think about because we use our thumbs a lot to hold things. A lot of video gamers use their thumbs all the time to hold the controller and press all the different buttons really quickly. We use our thumbs a lot. If you have a median nerve compression, you're going to have difficulty opposing your thumb. So if we think of apes and monkeys, gorillas, whatnot, their hands are not really using their thumbs. That's why it's called ape hand. The thumbs are not opposing. Okay, now I will be talking a little bit about some popular upper extremity injuries. There are so many upper extremity injuries that we can talk about but I don't want the podcast to be too long. I chose these five because there is a 95% chance you will see 
these diagnoses either in a clinical simulation question or as a question on the exam. Okay, so the first one that we're going to discuss is Dupuytren's disease. <laughs> I might have butchered the name, but I apologize. So Dupuytren's disease is where we have the fascia in the palm and the digits. They become very thick and there is some type of contracture. So a contracture we know, right, is where there is some type of flexion or extension, some type of movement that cannot be undone. And it can be very painful and very aggravating to patients. So Dupuytren's disease is when there it can be either in any type of finger, any digit, and it's just complete flexion. So it's looking kind of crazy. And the only way for it to be released is through surgery. When I think of surgery, we're thinking that there's going to be wound care, there's going to be some type of edema, and also some type of range of motion that's going to be needed as therapy once the wound heals. There's also going to be scar management. And as OTs, we want to make sure that that patient is participating in purposeful occupational-based tasks that will be involving gripping and releasing. So because of that surgical release, they now have to work on that flexion and extension of those fingers that were having those contractures. And participating in activities that deal with gripping and releasing will be very appropriate for this patient. The second diagnosis that kind of is seen in upper extremities and hands is called complex regional pain syndrome, also known as CRPS. There are two different types. The first type has nothing to do with nerve injuries. Type two of CRPS deals with nerve injuries. There are so many symptoms that deal with this certain pain syndrome. There can be contractures, there can be differences in the skin, abnormal sweating, muscle spasms, decrease in strength and tolerance for activity. There's so many different things that can be affiliated with this certain diagnosis. But the most important thing is our OT intervention. How can we help this patient when they are in pain, especially with this complex regional pain syndrome? Some interventions can include active range of motion, splinting that is more in tone to prevent contractures, and enable the person to engage in occupational-based activities. And I feel like the most important intervention when working with patients with CRPS is stress loading. Another way of thinking about stress loading is anything dealing with weight-bearing. Weight-bearing activities are so important for patients with complex regional pain syndrome, and this is going to help relieve pain but also allow them to engage in meaningful activities. When we are thinking about these OT interventions, there's also things that we should avoid. So the way that I remembered things to avoid is knowing what we should do. So we want to do active range of motion. So the one that we're going to avoid is passive range of motion. We want to focus on splinting that will prevent contractures. So we are going to avoid dynamic splinting and casting. We are looking at active stretching, so we are going to avoid passive stretching. So the next disorder is going to be actually an overuse injury. So this is when you are doing 
repetitive movements over and over again. And there's actually two of them that I want to talk about. So the first one I want to talk about is called the Corvin syndrome. And the Corvin syndrome is usually seen in new mommies. <laughs> and I say that because when they're holding their babies, they are holding them in a position where their thumbs are up or opposed. And you are holding them and you're holding this position for so long because you're probably playing with the baby. You are jumping them up and down. And you are straining basically your radiostyloid area. There's a lot of pain in that area. And a test that will be positive for the Corvins is the Finkelstein test. And the way that I remember that is really weird. Finkelstein sounds like Frankenstein, right? And um, I just think of him just walking out, right? He's walking, his hands are stretched out, his thumbs are opposed, they're staying there, and he's just walking and walking, his legs are coming up, and his hands are out like that. And it kind of reminds me of Finkelstein, Frankenstein, D. Corvins. <laughs> I don't know if that might make sense to you, but it made complete sense to me. To test the Finkelstein, or just to test to see if the Finkelstein result will be positive, you're going to ask the person to make a fist, but the thumb is going to be inside. And if they come forward down, so they're going to deviate that radial styloid is going to be in so much pain if they do that. If they just move from side to side, they're deviating that area. Wherever that radial styloid is, it's going to be painful. That means the test is positive. That means they have the Corvin syndrome. Another injury that is very repetitive and is pretty popular among people who are working in the office or play the piano. You guys guessed it. Yes, it's carpal tunnel syndrome, also known as CTS. This one is innervated by the median nerve, fun fact, but this is definitely overuse of your median nerve. And as you guys remember, the median nerve is going to be innervating those thumb to the half ring finger and if we're constantly in that position if you just practice right now if you're typing or act like you have a piano and you're constantly in this position you're going to feel a lot of pain in your wrist so there are actually two tests that you can do to test if somebody has carpal tunnel syndrome so the first one is called failings, the failings test. The failings test is when the wrists are going to be in flexion and you have to hold it there. So it's kind of the opposite of a prayer where our wrists are in extension. It's the opposite of that. If you ever watched the Wendy Williams show and she always like, how you doing? How you doing? Her, literally her wrists are in flexion. So I think of failings. I think of Wendy Williams. Just Google it. YouTube Wendy Williams. How you doing? And it will make total sense to you. Okay. Another example that I thought of as well is for the failings test. We know it's going to be Rick's flexion. I think of somebody dropping the mic. Right. When we always talk about somebody roasting someone or they're on their soapbox and... They're literally preaching to everyone. 
at the end, they drop the mic. That's reflection right there. And it's really funny to mention that is because when somebody does have carpal tunnel syndrome, the person will complain about dropping things. So think about that. Dropping the mic, this person most likely may have carpal tunnel syndrome. Another test that we can do to see if somebody has carpal tunnel syndrome is the Tonell sign. And the Tonell sign, I think of the first letter T, T for tapping. And what we're literally doing is we're tapping at the medial nerve, basically at the wrist. And if there's pain in that wrist, that person most likely have carpal tunnel syndrome. So think of T, T for tapping. That new song, even though I'm not a huge fan of it, because it's a remix to another song that was made a long time ago. Um, that song, Tap, Tap, Tap In. Tap, Tap, Tap In. Think of Tanel. Tap, Tap, Tap. That median nerve. And if it's a positive sign, they have pain, then they probably have carpal tunnel syndrome. I know I said five upper extremity diagnoses or injuries, and I put this one together because they are kind of similar, but they are different in their own way. And I am talking about the boutonniere deformity and the swan neck deformity. Both of these can occur in the fingers. And it's really important to know the difference between the DIP joints and the PIP joints. DIP and PIPs, they're similar, but the DIPs are distal. So those are the ones that's right at the end of your fingertips. And then right after that is your PIP, which are your proximal interphalangeal joints, right? Boom. Okay. So <laughs> the difference between the boutonniere and the swan's neck, when focusing at the DIP and the PIP, one is going to be hyperextended or in extension, and the other one will be in flexion. So the boutonniere deformity, we're going to have hyperextension of the DIP joints and flexion of the PIP joints. And a way to remember this is in boutonniere, I see the word button. And it's looking like we are pushing a button. When I push the button, my DIP is going to be an extension. But for this boutonniere deformity, it's going to be in hyperextension. So it's really going to be at a 90 degree, which is kind of scary to think about. And automatically, my PIP joints are already going to be in flexion. So boutonniere, DIPs, hyperextension, PIPs are in flexion. Now we are looking at the swan neck deformity. It's going to be the total opposite. So DIPs, we're in hyperextension for our boutonniere. Now it's going to be in flexion for our swan neck deformity. And our PIPs, we're in flexion for boutonniere. Now it's going to be in hyperextension. And a way to remember this is think about a swan. A swan's neck is usually in flexion. So let's say our finger is the swan. That DIP joint is going to be in flexion. So that PIP joint is going to hyperextend. I can't do it correctly because I don't want to hurt my finger. But um, if I did have a swan neck deformity, that PIP joint will be extended more and that DIP will be showing the head, which will be that flexion piece. So always know, if you know one of them, you know the other, okay? So if you remember the boutonniere deformity because it's like pushing a button and you really can't remember what the swan neck is, 
Remember, it's the opposite of boutonniere and vice versa. I know I have discussed so many different things in this podcast. So I hope you guys are having a pen and paper and looking back and reversing whatever you have to do in order to get these important topics in your head and on paper. But the final thing that I'm going to discuss are splints. Splints are really important in our field of OT because I'm sure all of us in OT school have learned how to make a splint depending on the type of splint. It can be static, it can be dynamic, and of course we should always know that the angle of pull should always be 90 degrees. You got it right, great job. (laughs) So there are different types of splints and I'm not going to discuss all of them because as I mentioned before, there are so many upper extremity diagnosis and disorders there are so many different splints as well but i will discuss just a few i will talk about at least five of them because some of them are going to match with some of the upper extremities i did mention in this episode so keep that in mind the first one i'm going to talk about is kind of the most common one is the resting hand splint And the resting hand splint is usually used for anybody that has some type of spasticity. So spasticity is a fancy word of saying increase of tone. So this person is having some challenges of resting the hand. So the splint is there to help that person decrease the tone in the hand and upper extremity. The next one that I'm going to talk a little bit about is the thumb abduction splint. This can also be known as the C-bar splint or the thumb post splint. This is great for anybody that has an A-pan. I just did a pause because I wasn't sure if anybody knew what that was. But if you did, great job. Because if we mentioned before, that A-pan is when that person has that loss of thumb opposition. So this thumb A-B-deduction splint allows a web space to be created between that thumb and that index finger. So they're regaining that thumb out position so they can participate in meaningful occupations and hopefully they won't need a splint anymore as they continue with OT treatment. The next one that we will discuss is the lumbrical bar splint. And this is going to reduce any MCP hyperextension and IP flexion contractures. Do you remember what type of deformity that was? Yep, that was claw hand. Claw hand is affiliated with the ulnar nerve. There you go, you guys got it. So as I mentioned before, that ulnar nerve is matching with that claw hand because the claw hand is having MCP hyperextension. So the lumbrical bar splint helps reduce that from occurring. The next splint that we will be discussing is the wrist extension splint. This is a dynamic splint where the wrist, finger, and thumb are actually doing some movement, but the splint is helping it move. And what type of deformity will this be great for? Wrist drop. Wrist drop also will be affiliated with the radial nerve. So any patient that has wrist drop, they're most likely going to have this type of splint. And the last one that I'll discuss is the anti-deformity splint. And this is usually used for patients that have burns on the hands or upper extremities. 
So if you're thinking about a burn, specifically on the hand or in the hand, this anti-deformity splint has to be in specific angles at the wrist, the MCP joints, and the IP joints. A lot of books and resources give different types of numbers of angles so as long as you're within that range you'll be fine so always keep in mind that the wrist should be an extension at least between 15 to 30 degrees of wrist extension the mcp joints should be between 50 to 70 degrees of flexion and the ip joints are always 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 in full extension i'll probably do an episode later on on burns but keep in mind that we never want our patient to be in any position of comfort. So for example, if we have a burn at the wrist, that position of comfort will be wrist flexion. So we always wanna do the opposite when we are positioning those patients. And this splint will do just the thing. But as I said, I will probably have a burns episode later on in the future. If you guys wanna definitely hit me up. But there you have it guys. That is what I wanted to talk about with upper extremities and hands. I know this is a very stressful, stressful topic. There's a lot of different information that you need to know about it. But I hope I did give you guys just a little preview of some things that you should know because for the most part, those are some of the things that I saw on my exam. And you most likely will see it on your exam as well in a different way, of course. But I hope this was helpful. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything I mentioned, hit me up on IG, DM me at reaching.your.potential, or email me the old-fashioned way, reachingyourpotential96 at gmail.com. But that's it, y'all. This is your girl, Amber, Reaching Your Potential. Talk to you guys soon. Peace out.